Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoy the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And what we have tonight is kind of a part two of what we had last week. These stories are so connected together. In fact, I was looking back and the last time I preached on this chapter, I actually preached both of those texts together in one sermon. So we'll see how tonight goes. Um, something, uh, I, I, we've already gone back to Exodus. We've already gone back to Exodus and we've seen how um, Pharaoh was threatened by the fact that the Hebrew people were growing. That that there were more and more children growing. And he was afraid politically that there would be some kind of an uprising and they would lose their slaves. But I think this goes back even further than just Exodus chapter 1. Because if we look all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall, we see that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And in that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, God promises that one day there would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, just think of Pharaoh, this mighty king of Egypt. And we've seen pictures of of the pharaohs in Egypt, and they all have that big hat that looks like a cobra. And I think uh, Moses was probably on purpose... um, representing Pharaoh as the seed of the serpent. And there was enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That was the Hebrew children. The line, the people from whom the the Messiah would one day come. And there was someone that was standing in between Adam and Eve and Jesus who came And that was Moses. He was somebody pointing forward to a greater Moses. Someone who was greater than Moses. John compares Jesus and Moses and says that uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a similarity between the two characters, and we see this same thing in their birth narratives. You have... Moses, who before he was even born, the Pharaoh had made this command that any male child that was born had to be killed or had to be thrown into the Nile River to be eaten by crocodiles. And here at Jesus' birth, Herod, another king, While he was not a pharaoh, he didn't have the same kind of headdress looking like a cobra that we might think of when we think of Egypt. He represents the seed of the serpent who had enmity between him and the seed of the woman which finally came who was Jesus. The enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Herod was threatened politically, just like Pharaoh was before. And he commanded that every child, every male child, be killed. Let's go ahead and take a look at our text, beginning in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. 
Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were 2 years old or younger, according to the time that he had, it had he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And there he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has finally come to crush Satan's skull. And though many tried to defeat him, many tried to stamp him out before he was ever even able to be there, he came just as he was promised. And though he was put to death on the cross, he rose again, giving us victory and life eternal. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, give me grace and strength as I preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of a gruesome story we see here. We we saw in the last week's text that we were looking at how Herod secretly wanted to, to, to find out where this child would be born. The Magi had come past Jerusalem on the way, and they found Herod, and they were seeking, where is this child that was born king? Of course, this was threatening news to Herod, and he wanted to know, when did this star raise? He was asking him, and he was inquiring, when when did this star come about? And uh, he was able to find out that information. And the Magi were able to find out the information that it would be in Bethlehem from what the prophet Micah had written long ago. 
Well, the angel warned the Magi as they left to go another way. But it caught up with them. We begin here in verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Um, they had probably lived there in Bethlehem after Jesus' birth for some time. As, as I had said last week, it could have been that Jesus was up to two years old at the time uh, that the Magi finally came. And uh, um, they, had been, they had had a home. They were, they were used to living there. And um, this angel, this is something that happened to Joseph before. Joseph had been told by an angel to not be afraid to, to take his wife to him, to take Mary to himself and accept her as his own wife. And here again, we have the same kind of story. Uh, the angel comes to Joseph again in a dream. Both times this was in a dream. This time he says, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. We might wonder, why Egypt? Why not just go to the next town over? They're going to be looking in Bethlehem. Why, not, why, not, why do I have to go all the way to Egypt? Well, that was a common place where fugitives would run to and where people would take refuge in Egypt. We think all the way back to Abraham when there was a famine in the land. Where did they run to be able to get food? They went to, or not Abraham, but oh yeah, actually Abraham did. And then Jacob as well and Joseph and all of his brothers came down to Egypt to get refuge from the famine. And in the book of Isaiah, one of the things that uh, the people were tempted to do was to, to rely on a political allegiance with Egypt instead of trusting in God. And they were told not to make an alliance with Egypt, but instead to trust in God. Not to trust in chariots and horses and rulers, but to trust in the Lord our God. Uh, so it, oftentimes we see in the past that Egypt would be the place where someone would run to whenever they were in danger. And here, the angel gives the same instructions. He says, go to Egypt. He says, rise. He's not just waking him up. <laughs> he says, get up. It's time to go. Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Flee. He doesn't just say go. He says, flee, run, run for your lives, is what he tells him. And remain there until I tell you. The next part says, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This, this pattern that we see in Exodus as well, there, the ruler uh, wanted to kill the child and God provided a way for Moses to be saved. His mother was brave and put him into the basket. And he went, ended up growing up under Pharaoh's very nose. Here, instead of uh, the same kind of rescue here, uh, the brave thing that Joseph does is he gets his family up and he runs. He flees. That is brave. He does exactly what the angel tells them to do. 
And he warns them the reason why they're to run. We know it because we've been reading from the last chapter. But here, Joseph is just finding out. He finds out that Herod, this king over the Jews, he was not actually a Jew. He was uh, an Edomite. They called them Edomians. Um, he was Herod the Great, uh, as I said last week, his reputation was brutal. And as he got older and older, his, his reputation just got even more brutal because as he aged and get, got closer to death, there were even more threats to his rule. Uh, I said last week there were two sons that um, Herod killed. As I was reading for tonight, I actually realized there were three sons that Herod had killed because they were threats to his own throne. So we know that this is consistent with the character, the historical character we know even outside of the Bible of who, what Herod was like. Other historians like Josephus and others wrote about Herod. Verse 14, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Here we see a command and obedience. What the angel commanded Joseph to do was to rise and flee, taking the child and his mother. And what do we see? As soon as this vision is over, what does Joseph do? He rises and he takes this child and his mother and they went down they departed to go to Egypt. He immediately commanded and he immediately went down. And he left. They remained there, it tells us, until the death of Herod. Now Herod the Great, uh, we understand from archaeology, died in the year 4 B.C. Um, and that, that may be kind of confusing because here we're thinking, you know, what year did Je- was Jesus born? You know, we, we've got A.D. and B.C. all split because of Christ coming. Well, um, most suspect that Jesus was probably born 4 B.C. or earlier because we also know from um, archaeology that Herod died in 4 B.C. So whenever he died... Oh, I'm sorry. Matthew then gives us the reason why God told him to go down to Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea was the prophet who said this, out of Egypt I called my son. And Hosea was reflecting on what God had done with Israel in the past. He was thinking about the Exodus. And Israel as a nation, God called his own son. And what God did for Israel... He was now doing for Jesus. You can see over and over in the Gospels points at which what happened to Israel happens to Jesus. Uh, This shows that Jesus was the true Israel all along. This is uh, so many of the promises that were given to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus himself. And so whenever Hosea was talking about, out of Egypt I have called my son, he was probably reflecting on the fact that uh, uh, Egypt, that uh, the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. But at the same time, Matthew recognizes this pattern here 
and, and thinks back on the prophet and sees what happened to Israel happened to Jesus. Just like Israel was brought out of Egypt, so Jesus was brought out of Egypt. Fulfilling this pattern where Jesus lives out the life of Israel in His own life. I'm sorry if that's a little confusing. (laughs) Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were around two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. First, we see that he, he saw that he had been tricked. He realized it. He realized he had been tricked. And the word there for tricked isn't exactly tricked. The word there is usually translated in other places in the Bible, mocked. Um, but it's hard to bring that through in the translation here. Um, it's not that the Magi was that were there mocking him, but that's how he felt. He felt that he had been mocked by the fact that they... So, Maybe, maybe one way you could put it was, would be that uh, when he saw that the Magi had um, played a trick on him, he became furious. He was angered. And he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all the surrounding regions. It wasn't just Bethlehem. It was all the surrounding region there. Who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The two years marks the fact that the wise men had probably had told them uh, that the, the star they had seen in the star in the sky had come about two years earlier. So we have uh, this, this time frame that um, um, Herod is looking at for how long ago the, the Messiah might have been born, this one who would be called King of the Jews. Now, do we have anything from archaeology that tells us about um, this slaughter in Bethlehem? No, we don't. Um, we don't read about this in any other source other than here in the Gospel of Matthew. But that's not a problem. It's consistent with what we know about Herod. He was a brutal guy. And he was known to even kill his own sons. And, and he was uh, very brutal in all kinds of different ways to uh, the different cities. And we also need to think of the size of Bethlehem. At the size of Bethlehem, I I read that there's probably was only about 20 boys under the age of two in the town. So it may not have been something that would have been on the radar for people like Josephus and other historians to be able to write about, for it to be in history outside of the Bible. But this took place. Um, Herod was threatened because he was representing the seed of the serpent who wanted to destroy the seed of the woman. He didn't know he was the seed of the serpent. He didn't consciously understand that. It's not as if he were somehow possessed by the devil or anything. But yet, the author here, Matthew, presents him in that light. This enmity between the powers of this age and the one who was to come. Verse 17. 
Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Notice here only that uh, in the first one, when it says um, the, what the Lord spoke by the prophet, I mentioned that was Hosea who said, out of Egypt I, will, I called my son. He says that in the singular. Also back in um, verse 6 or ver- verse 5, it's also written by the prophet singular. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. And here it says, verse 17, um, that what was filled by the prophet Jeremiah, singular again. Just kind of tuck that away because we're going to come to another one here in a minute. What, what Jeremiah wrote was, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's a fitting passage, yet Ramah is not Bethlehem. They're different places. I think what we see here in Jeremiah, the way he was talking about Rachel, was Rachel was considered the, the mother of all of, of the nation of Israel. Well, we know, for, we know in reality that Leah had had more children than Rachel, Jeremiah was probably talking about Rachel as if she were the mother of all of the Israelites. And when, when the Israelites uh, were taken into captivity and uh, defeated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, um, this language about Rachel weeping for her children uh, was um, being used to represent the mother of Israel weeping and crying because her children were no more. They were taken off. And so this, the, the, the parallel here is a symbolism. It's not that um, Ramah is the same place as Bethlehem, but the, there's a parallel here. When the serpent struck out against Jesus, when he sent his soldiers to come and kill all these male children, you have... All of these mothers, the mothers of Israel, who are crying and weeping and they cannot be comforted because their children are gone. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Here again we see... Joseph having a dream in which an angel appears to him. And this time it's in Egypt. By saying in Egypt, I think it points out that God was with them no matter where they were. He was with them whenever um, Matthew had that first vision and he was told, go ahead and accept your wife. He was with them whenever they were in Bethlehem and, and the angel told them to leave and he was still with them in Egypt. All along, he was with them. He had this dream uh, in Egypt and it said almost exactly the same thing as he was told before. Arise. Same words as before. Take the child and his mother. Same words as before. And go to the land of Egypt. Instead of Egypt, now they say the land of Israel. So he's returning back to the land, the promised land. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He doesn't just specify Herod himself. It's a plural there. He, he says those who sought the child's life. 
Verse 21, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. That's the whole land as a whole. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. So you have the whole land of Israel and then Judea, which was the area where um, Herod was reigning, closer to around Jerusalem, including Bethlehem and that. Um, He didn't want to come close there. Archelaus was Herod's son, and he was afraid that Archelaus may try to do the same. And even a dream warns him, yes, you're on the right track. Don't do it. Don't go back to that same place. So they go to Galilee. Galilee was where Jesus' ministry began as well. um, Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called the Nazarene. A couple of things here. One, Nazareth was a little out-of-the-way place that nobody cared about. It had a bad reputation, if it had any reputation at all. And it was it was small, it was out of the place. They would have called they would have been considered country bumpkins compared to those in the city. And it was of Galilee. Galilee was a place where there were many Gentiles that lived as well. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called the Nazarene. Now this is problematic here. There is no place in all of the Old Testament where any of the prophets said that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. That's troublesome. But one of the things that helps us here is it, it does, he does all of those other places, Matthew says, the prophet, the prophet, It's the singular. But here, he says the prophets. He's not citing a specific prophet. He's he's talking about the prophets as a whole. So he's getting this more from the general picture of what all the prophets had to say. There's a couple of ways we can understand what does it mean whenever, what is Matthew getting at whenever he says that Jesus will be called the Nazarene? First of all, Isaiah chapter 11 says that um, the Messiah would be the branch of, Je- of David, the branch of David. And the word for branch, um, it uses the Hebrew root, Nazar, which, which sounds kind of like Nazarene. And so maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe he was uh, speaking of the fact that Jesus was the branch of David. That might be one thing that he was speaking of here. Another idea was more of a metaphorical idea. Nazareth was nothing. It was just a little bitty town that nobody cared about. And that reflects the kind of reading what we see in the prophets. Who would this Messiah be? He'd be nobody that anybody would care about. He would come from humble beginnings who would rise up and be the king of kings. And so that's another way to to understand it. Another way that some have considered uh, would be um, Nazareth Nazareth and Nazarene are similar to the word Nazarite. Um, 
And there's a similarity that we see between the most famous Nazarite we see in the Old Testament and Jesus. Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite, we don't even read very much about the Nazarites at all in the Old Testament. The Nazarites, uh, they, they were required to um, abstain from touching dead things. They were required to keep from cutting their hair. And they were required to, um, um, to refrain from drinking alcohol. Jesus, as far as we know, didn't do any of those things. In fact, he made wine as his first wedding, as his first miracle at a wedding. So we don't we know that Jesus wasn't a Nazarene, a Nazarite. Um, the similarity that we see there, though, between Samson and Jesus is that Samson's birth was also kind of a miraculous birth. His parents were aged. They didn't think they could have any children. They, she was beyond the years of childbearing age. And the angel came to them and warned, let, let them know they were going to have a child as well. And so that may be a similarity we see between this Nazarite Samson in the Old Testament and Jesus. Those three options are all available. We don't know exactly for sure what Matthew was thinking here whenever he said the prophet's said that he would be called a Nazarene. I think probably where I lean is the idea that it's um, um, Isaiah chapter 11, whenever it has that word, Natsar, which means the branch, like the branch of David. He is the Messiah who would come from Jesse's stock. That was all kind of technical. So what are we going to get from this? There was a seed of the woman and a seed of the serpent. From Genesis chapter 3 on, we see this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent wants to kill and destroy the seed of the woman. Um, We see Cain kill his brother Abel. We see Cain's line uh, descending into this man who says, you know, I've killed seven men. And if somebody avenges me, then I'll get back at them. I mean, he's just boasting in what kind of a murderer he is. You see this difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see it again in Exodus with with, um, um, Pharaoh wanting to destroy the children of Israel. Wanting to be useful to him. So let's not just kill the girls. He wanted them to be useful but he didn't want them to threaten him. And here we see again this, this theme of the seed of the serpent wants to kill the seed of the woman who would come. Well, he came and he was victorious. Jesus defeated the devil. He defeated the seed of the serpent. He defeated death and hell for us. He died on the cross and He rose again so that we might have eternal life forever. And we are now adopted. If we trust in Him, we believe in Him, we have been adopted into His family and we can now all say we are children of God. As John chapter 1 says, to as many as received him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. We as believers are now included in that, in the seed, which is both singular and plural, 
in, 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 in included in the seed of the woman. Romans, I believe it is, says that uh, um, he, there's a doxology where it, I can't remember the exact wording, but it says, uh, "May um, may you crush Satan under your feet." We believers do the same thing. And Satan hates us just as much. Because if we are believers, we are, we are being transformed into the image of the very one who Satan hates and has wanted to destroy from the very beginning. If we are believers, then Satan wants to attack us, wants to destroy us, wants to get us to give up on following him. But God provided protection. He provided protection for Moses. He provided protection for Jesus by Joseph and sending an angel to tell him. And he provides protection for us as well. When Satan wants to defeat us, when he wants to destroy us, he gives us his word that we can use in the midst as we battle against temptation. He gives us His Spirit that indwells within us and gives us strength and power to fight. We are not alone in this battle against the seed of the serpent. And He gives us the armor. um, Ephesians chapter 6 gives us a description of this armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the uh, the feet that are shod with the, the preparation of the gospel of peace. This war is still going on even though we are fighting against a defeated enemy. Satan has been defeated at the cross and he is like a beheaded dragon that is still flailing around trying to get whatever he can before he loses consciousness. He is defeated. He has no power. He is defeated by Jesus. His head has been crushed and we as believers will one day crush him as well. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.com or you can like us on Facebook.